Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us at the Wilson Center. My name is Abe Denmark. I'm director of the Asia program. Uh, and this is our discussion on relations between Russia and the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, better known as ASEAN. Uh, today, we're uh, joined by um, my good friend and a former colleague from the Pentagon, Dr. Amy Seawright, who um, is uh, one of the world's leading experts on Southeast Asia. Um, and just personally, a tremendous colleague that we got to, um, that I got to enjoy working with um, when we were both Deputy Assistant Secretaries of Defense, me for East Asia, she for South and Southeast Asia. Um, running the discussion today um, and participating is going to be the Wilson Center Asia Program's own uh, Lucas Myers, uh, who came to us a few months ago um, from, from another research organization. We're very pleased to have him on board and very pleased to bring in his expertise on Southeast Asia. And so with that, I'll turn things over uh, to Lucas. Thanks, Abe. Uh, it's good to be here. So today, you know, we're talking about Russia and Southeast Asia. With the increasing prevalence of Southeast Asia and the policy conversation in Washington and the ongoing crisis in Myanmar, it is really the perfect time to address Russia's role in the region, uh, which is often overlooked. From its active role in the Cold War and support of communist regimes, most notably in the Vietnam War, uh, to its renewed interest in the, re in the region over the past two decades, Russia plays an important role. And within, with US-China relations increasingly uh, contentious and Southeast Asia finding itself on the front lines of great power competition, Russia has positioned itself as an outside power looking to expand its economic and security ties with ASEAN and its member states. This role often complicates the, the standard China-Russia axis narrative as Russia's foreign, Russia's foreign policy in Southeast Asia is sometimes out of sync with China's, particularly in the South China Sea. Elsewhere, Russia has pursued economic ties with ASEAN countries, energy exploration, and supplied arms to various countries. Most recently, Russia has been in the news as an active arms supplier and defender of Myanmar's military coup in the United Nations. Russia, given its history in the region and complex position vis-a-vis -vis the US and China and Southeast Asia, will play a key role going forward. What are its interests and the drivers that spur its engagement in Southeast Asia? And how will it behave going forward? To answer these questions and more, it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Amy Seawright, uh, the Senior Associate for Asia at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. She also previously served as Senior Advisor and Director of the Southeast Asia Program at CSIS. Dr. Seawright has extensive expertise on Southeast Asia from both governmental and academic perspectives. From 2014 to 2016, she served in the Department of Defense as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for South and Southeast Asia. Prior to that appointment, she served as Principal Director for East Asian Security at DOD and as Senior Advisor for Asia and the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID. She has also served on the Policy Planning Staff and as Special Advisor for Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation in the State Department as a Consul on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellow. Prior to entering government, Dr. Seawright was an Assistant Professor at the Elliott School of International Affairs at, Washington, at George Washington University where she taught the international, international relations of Asia and directed the mid-career master's program in international policy and practice. She was also an assistant professor at Northwestern University and a postdoctoral fellow at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard. Dr. Seawright holds a PhD in political science and an MA in East Asian studies from Stanford University. I am grateful for and looking forward to Dr. Seawright's expertise and insights on Russia and Southeast Asia. Dr. Seawright? Uh, well, thank you. Um... Abe and Lucas uh, for that kind introduction. 
Um, I should say that I, I, I am uh, an expert uh, in Southeast Asia. I am not an expert in Russia. So um, Lucas might have oversold me a bit in terms of my insights into Russian uh, drivers of Russian behavior and, and motivations. Um, I think that Lucas and others perhaps here may have more insights into that. What I can share with you today is my observations of Russia in the region and how the region views Russia, um, but how Moscow um, is likely to view the region and, and shape its strategies going forward. Um, again, I, I, I lead to others to have more insights um, into, into Russian behavior because I'm certainly not a Russia expert by any stretch um, of the imagination. But let me begin with an anecdote of my own experience with Russia in Southeast Asia which I think crystallized for me several issues relating to Russia's behavior in the region and why I think Russia is not really viewed as a major strategic player um, in the region. Um, when I was Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Southeast Asia, South and Southeast Asia, I was the senior official uh, for the Defense Department for uh, the ADMM Plus. So, the AD, so at, when the United States joined the East Asia Summit, um, one of the um, uh, institutions that's connected to that is the uh, ASEAN Defense Ministers Meeting, where the plus countries, the, the additional countries outside of ASEAN that are part of the East Asia Summit, um, so that includes uh, Japan, South Korea, uh, India, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Republic, uh, or Korea, um, and now United States and Russia, um, uh, uh, are part of this uh, plus countries in addition to the 10 ASEAN Southeast Asian countries that come together, the defense ministers come together um, and, and meet to talk about defense cooperation. And in the lead up to the defense ministers meeting, the senior officials from the defense departments meet um, as well as prior to that working groups meet to talk about um, working group topics and plan exercises. So I was a senior official uh, on the defense side representing the United States. And uh, we had these annual meetings. And in 2014, uh, the meeting was in Myanmar, in Naypyidaw. And uh, the way ASEAN does it is we sit around a large table and we go in alphabetical order with all the countries, all 16 countries, the 10 ASEAN countries and the six plus countries all sit together around the table. So the United States starting with a U goes pretty much close to last. Vietnam is the last country. Um, Myanmar sits at the head table as the host and it goes around alphabetically. Russia, as an R country, you know, goes before the United States, followed by Singapore and then Thailand and then the United States. Now this was right after, this was, you know, after um, the crisis in Crimea, when Russia had invaded Crimea and there were still ongoing hostilities in the Ukraine and the Minsk, Minsk, Minsk agreement had been forged, um, but there wasn't a lot of optimism um, in terms of, of, of the Russia, Russians holding their, their commitments. Uh, so I left uh, for this meeting um, with remarks prepared because the senior officials around the table give their views, their strategic, their view, their region, their views of the the regional um, strategic views. Uh, uh, excuse me, their views of the kind of strategic dynamics in the region as the big part of the meeting. Um, we go around the table and everyone kind of gives remarks and most people, most of the officials focused on the South China Sea and other transnational challenges. Um, but I left in coordination with my uh, counterparts on the Russia-Eurasia desk 
with in my back pocket some um, statements on Russia in Crimea in case the Russians raised any issues related to that. And sure enough, when the Russian, the Russians showed up with a deputy minister of defense, and when the Russians, when it got around to the Russian uh, delegate, the senior official, everyone else up until that point had talked, everything, you know, all the remarks were very much focused on South, issues very much related to Southeast Asia. Um, but the Russians started talking about global terrorism, everything from Afghanistan to Iraq and how all these global terrorism problems were instigated by the United States, very much just kind of on a, on a tear about how the United States were causing all these problems in the world, and then launched into the Ukraine and said that, you know, that Russia had no, uh, you know, because the United States was instigating all these problems and was stirring up trouble in the Ukraine, Russia had no choice but to go in and defend their brethren in the Ukraine um, and, you know, started to create this narrative. So I knew I had to pull out of my back pocket these points uh, to, to, to lay down on the Minsk agreement, which I which then when it was my turn after the Russians finished, Singapore, uh, Thailand uh, gave their piece. And then I pulled out my points and I gave my remarks, uh, which then included the, the points on uh, uh, Ukraine. And then uh, Vietnam finished up. And then, uh, but before Vietnam, sorry, when I was finished, before Vietnam could finish, the Russian uh, deputy uh, defense minister um, immediately raised his hand uh, at, for an intervention, um, which the Myanmar chair recognized and said, I must intervene to um, uh, say that this, this woman, uh, this United because I have talked to John Kerry and we have an agreement um, around the Minsk agreement, and he and he knows that we are, you know, in we are in agreement of what's going forward. And she clearly does not know what her government has already has understood our position to be. And you know, he just sort of just goes on and on, um, you know, kind of attacking me personally, um, which is fine. I mean, it, but it was it was very bombastic uh, kind of display. Um, again, just really kind of coming after me as a United States uh, official. Um, and then, uh, and then he was finished and then kind of went on, let Vietnam then went, who focused entirely on the South China Sea, uh, and then went, uh, and then uh, Myanmar then opened it up for other interventions. And we went around the room and, um, uh, the Australian delegate, senior official, Peter Baxter came right back and defended, um, the United States position on the principles um, of uh, the Minsk Agreement, everything, and others, other allies and friends and partners chimed in, uh, et cetera. And the reason I, I tell this long story, and oh, I should say, and then in 2015, we were in Malaysia, and again, I brought points um, about uh, Crimea and the Ukraine, and again, the Russians brought up as a major part of their intervention, uh, Ukraine and Crimea, and again, I made my points and again, you know, this became kind of a U.S. versus Russia thing. Um, uh, and both times also, interestingly, the Russian uh, delegation, um, members of the Russian delegation kind of went scurrying around the room to the Chinese delegation and kind of exchanged, kind of hurried, you know, kind of um, uh, 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 backbenchers were kind of, uh, uh, exchanging um, hush commentary, uh, it looked like the Russians were trying to get the Chinese perhaps to intervene on their side of this argument. 
Um, and in neither, but the Chinese in both years had major um, arguments, major points to make re regarding the South China Sea. And the Chinese delegation did not come in on the side of Russia around this Crimea argument um, on behalf of, of Russia. So, uh, so that was also kind of fun theatrics to watch. Um, so I make I'm, this long story, um, but it was very interesting to me because I thought, why would the Russians, you know, they have this seat at the table at an ASEAN-led meeting around regional dynamics in Southeast Asia, and they're using um, their time to pick a fight with the United States um, around a European issue, a Eurasia, you know, a European issue, um, which I can't imagine the Southeast Asians feel much involvement in. They don't really have equities in this fight. Um, it's not one where they would feel their principles, uh, their norms are involved. Um, the norms, the way the Russians engaged in this discussion with the United States was kind of in violation of the ASEAN way, the ASEAN set of norms. You know, uh, the, the way that the Russians went about this was, was very much out of character, the way all the, other all the other senior officials engaged in the discussion. And so it really sort of put them out of place. It really put them out of the discussion. Um, it did allow them to score points against the United States, which I'm sure made them feel good. And may maybe that was a way to you know, knock down the United States a peg or two in, the, in, this, in this meeting. Um, it probably was helpful for China um, in that context. But I really don't see how it was advancing some, you know, if, if Russia had a real strategic um, game it was trying to play in terms of winning the hearts and minds of Southeast Asia or advancing an economic strategy or a concrete set of diplomatic objectives. It was just not clear to me what it was achieving. And this is, um, I observed this in different ways when I was working many years before on APEC and in many other contexts as well. So the, the bottom line, I think, of the argument um, that, that I would make is that, you know, although Russia has often talked about um, uh, making a pivot to the East and uh, really trying to focus on making a, uh, you know, really building a much more strategic relationship with Southeast Asia um, at various times in the post-Soviet uh, era. Um, I think they've never really managed to make, um, gain much traction in that effort. And part of that is historical, part of that is geoeconomic, you know, and, and part of it I think is the lack of diplomatic ambition and focus that the Russians have, have brought to bear on that. Um, historically, I'm, you know, I'm no, I'm no his, historian on uh, Russia, uh, Southeast Asia relations, but you know, a couple big points to make. Um, ASEAN was formed in the 1960s um, when Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, and the Philippines uh, came together, really uh, largely as the anti-communist bloc. Um, they were very worried about Indochina. They were very, very worried about expansionist China at the time. But when Vietnam uh, invaded Cambodia, um, that put you know a, a real uh, cool coolness towards the Soviet Union. So relations with Soviet Union and ASEAN in the early days were were very almost non-existent and very very cool. Um, of course, the Soviets had a, a strong relationship with, with Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia. They gave a lot of political and economic aid to those countries and and Burma, Myanmar. Um, and that lasted over time um, to this day that there's that kind of legacy, um, which, which includes arms sales and other kinds of cooperation. Um, but the, the, the broader ASEAN 
and more of the maritime ASEAN countries um, have not have never had that kind of like historical those historical ties. Uh, Vietnam has been the closest country to Russia in many ways, uh, certainly on the military side. Um, they've had close military cooperation. A lot of their arms sales um, uh, have come from from uh, from Russia. They've had close energy uh, ties, energy exploration going back to the Soviet days. They've had joint energy exploration, and Russia has had special access um, rights to uh, Cameron Bay. Uh, Vietnam's military port there, um, largely for servicing uh, Vietnam's um, naval fleet of largely Soviet-built um, uh, uh, conventional submarines. Um, uh, moving to Myanmar, um, uh, in, at a time when Myanmar was internationally sanctioned, um, facing international sanctions, uh, uh, Russia saw this as an opportunity to sell arms uh, to the Tatmadaw, the, the, the uh, Burmese military, um, and sign some oil and exploration, uh, oil and gas exploration deals. Um, and Russia is Myanmar's second largest uh, supplier of military arms behind China. Um, uh, after the February 1st military coup that happened in Myanmar this year, uh, Moscow really see has seemed to seek to fill the diplomatic void in a way that no other country has. Even China has been more cautious than Moscow. So it has really stepped in forcefully. Um, on the Armed Forces Day in late March, it sent, uh, Russia sent a, its uh, deputy defense minister to the big military parade that featured not only tanks and other big equipment, but um, several um, Soviet built uh, jets, military jets flying overhead. Uh, the Myanmar military is awaiting um, a shipment, a delivery of uh, six Sukhoi advanced fighter jets that it had ordered in uh, 2019. And it signed um, a deal with uh, Russia just in the days right before the coup when the Russian um, military chief visited Myanmar. Um, it signed contracts for a Russian air defense system and surveillance drones. Um, so it clearly has close ties with, with Myanmar and it's taking every advantage of this coup to really uh, push in to become uh, even closer to uh, Myanmar. It has no qualms whatsoever with embracing Myanmar in the midst of the coup. Um, and it, uh, you know, during this uh, visit, during the, uh, at the arms, around the Arms Forces Day, um, this uh, deputy defense minister talked about Myanmar as, as a reliable ally and, as, and strategic partner in Asia and received a medal and ceremonial sword from General Min Hung Lang as a token of his appreciation. Um, uh, I've, I've already mentioned that uh, historically Russia has had close ties, given a lot of aid to Cambodia and Laos. Um, the one country um, in a traditional um, ASEAN that has really stepped up ties with Russia in more recent decades has been Indonesia. Um, they've signed a number of defense cooperation agreements and Indonesia has bought a lot of military uh, equipment um, uh, from Russia um, and, uh, and, and, and has done some energy uh, cooperation as well. Um, but Russia has, has really kind of focused a lot of its efforts on regional architecture. Um, Russia has been part of APEC for quite some time. Uh, Putin hosted APEC, uh, Russia hosted APEC in uh, 2012 in Vladivostok 
and, and Putin used that year to really try to make the case that Russia was a full-fledged Asia-Pacific power. Uh, you know, he, he, he wrote a lot of op-eds and made speeches about Russia really being, you know, a, 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 a completely um, Pacific power and fully committed to that kind of Pacific part of its, of its you know, of, it, of its uh, large uh, geostrategic um, position. Um, but economically, there's very thin ties to the region and especially Southeast Asia. Um, you know, when you compare total trade of ASEAN to, uh, to China, which is its largest trade partner, in 2018, um, ASEAN-China trade amounted to 588 billion, uh, whereas Russia-ASEAN trade was 19.8 billion. So these are totally different kinds of numbers. Um, and Russia's not, you know, is, is not at all part of the regional production network of, you know, build, of components being built in different countries, um, crossing borders, uh, being, uh, you know, different manufacturing parts being um, uh, uh, built and integrated in a in manufacturing kind of production line um, in the way that all the many other countries in the region are kind of linked together in, in foreign direct investment and manufacturing uh, in the region. Russia is really just not part of that at all. So uh, what are Russia's economic interests in the region or strategic interests uh, as well? Well, um, it, Russia has interests in selling oil and energy um, and it has seen opportunities in the South China Sea to do some exploration of oil and energy. Um, it's interested in selling military arms and equipment uh, to a region that is relatively heavily armed and um, has been, uh, because of regional tensions, um, looks to be ramping up um, its, its equipment buying, weaponry buying in, in the coming years. Um, and Russia has an interest in promoting the image of a, of a great power. Um, certainly symbolically, it wants to be seen as a great power with two fronts, a European front and a Pacific front. Um, it wants to be seen as an Asia Pacific power and not just one that's interested in Northeast Asia, not just one that's interested in the six party talks and the developments on the Korean peninsula, you know, stakes in North Korea, but it wants to be seen as a real Indo-Pacific power with stakes in India, uh, really kind of at the center of the table if Southeast Asia, which is both the kind of geographical part of the Indo-Pacific and one of the most dynamic, economically dynamic uh, parts of the region as well. So um, in the post-Soviet era, Russia has made a number of, of efforts to try to signal that it was really going to pivot to the East, um, not only as part of APEC, but it uh, made a bid uh, in 2005 when Malaysia uh, convinced the rest of uh, ASEAN to launch the East Asia Summit. And Malaysia hosted the inaugural event in 2005. Prime Minister Mahathir invited Putin to that inaugural summit as a guest, as an observer. And, and Putin made a, a real case to, for membership in 2005. You know, Russia always wants to be at the party. Russia always wants to be a member of these clubs. Um, uh, so Russia made a strong case uh, to join, um, but there was a lot of opposition to Russia's membership at the time. In large part, I think, because um, there are a lot of members that wanted the United States to join, uh, Japan, Singapore, 
um, there was a lot of concern already about China trying to um, really kind of move the East Asia summit into a kind of China heavy direction. And there was a, there was a, a real concern that if the United States wasn't in, China might dominate. So Japan, Singapore, um, some other countries uh, really kind of wanted to get the United States in. And they wanted uh, also Australia, New Zealand, uh, India in for that reason as well. Um, the Chinese really wanted Russia in as kind of a counterbalance against that. So, um, so Singapore um, really, really fought against Russia membership, arguing uh, that Russia's economic ties were way too thin with ASEAN for it to have any case for membership. Um, uh, and uh, they kind of won the argument uh, of the day at the time. But when the United States uh, signaled that it was ready for membership, that was kind of the deal that if the United States was gonna come in, Russia would come in too. And they came in together in 2011. And yet after coming into the East Asia summit, you know, Obama showed up in 2011 and showed up for the next four out of five years. Um, but Putin did not show up until 2018. There was no leader of Russia coming, coming to the East Asia summit you know, until 2018, seven years, they weren't there. They kept sending lower level people. The same is true for the ADMM plus for what it's worth. Uh, they, the defense secretary um, rarely showed up. They kept sending defense, uh, the deputy defense secretary um, and APEC as well. I mean, Putin often doesn't go, it's often delegated down. So we're in a region where economics really matters, first of all, showing up really, really matters. Um, which was a big complaint about Trump, parenthetically, is that he often didn't show up to the ASEAN meetings. Um, not showing up is a big is a big debit. And so if if they're really, really serious about wanting to be a big strategic player, you got to show up. Um, and Putin doesn't tend to show up. Now, Putin did host the the ten ASEAN leaders for the first ever Russia ASEAN summit in Sochi in two thousand and sixteen, and that was welcomed. Um, so that was another, you know, moment where many commentators thought this is a turning point. All 10 leaders attended Sochi and there was, you know, a lot of warm talk about a new moment in Russia, Southeast Asia ties. But again, several years later, five years later, it's hard to see real concrete manifestations of, of that. You know, it's hard to point to uh, Myanmar side, which is a real target of opportunity for Russia right now. It's hard to point to real um, areas of enhanced economic cooperation or even security cooperation that really has evolved from, from that moment. And there hasn't been any real follow-up on uh, another Russia-ASEAN summit, for example. Um, so uh, the oil and gas stuff in the South China Sea is very interesting. Uh, there was a moment where you know, there was a lot of tension in the South China Sea, um, a lot of tension uh, for Vietnam, core Vietnam was trying to uh, develop its, its oil and gas resources on various blocks and was getting bullied massively by China. And it had um, uh, Respasol, it had a, a Spanish firm, um, it had, um, and it had um, uh, some, uh, some uh, uh, Rosneft, uh, especially, which it had long had collaboration with um, uh, this, this half-owned Russian government firm that was doing a lot of oil exploration um, in some of these contested waters. And Rosneft was seemingly 
standing up to Chinese coercion. The Chinese didn't seem to be quite as tough on Rosneft as they were on some of the other companies at first. So there was some thought that perhaps Russia was going to, these Russian gas companies were going to be able to take a little bit more of a tougher, uh, more resistant line to China and therefore make things in the South China Sea around oil and gas exploration a little more interesting and complicated for China. And around this time, Duterte uh, met with the head of Rosneft. This was not long after the, the Sochi summit. Um, and Duterte did two things. First of all, he started talking about doing a lot of security cooperation with Moscow and started talking about doing joint um, uh, military exercises with the Russians. And he also started talking about doing joint um, uh, gas exploration with Rosneft. Um, neither of those materialized, interestingly. Uh, so um, Rosneft has backed off, really backed out of Vietnam eventually really last year. So it now looks like the, the, the Russians are not gonna play a South China Sea card against Beijing's interests. They're, you know, so what, what once looked like possibly an interesting dynamic now looks like it's really not. So um, we're back to what, you know, is, is a more um, depressing dynamic, which is, you know, it seems clear that Beijing is intent on bullying everyone out of the South China Sea. Um, and there's no real good options for, for any of these um, other claimant countries. So, um, so uh, where are we? That leaves us basically, um, uh, basically where we are, which is, you know, Russia has not really made any strategic gains in Southeast Asia. It's not really viewed as a, as a strategic player or a player with that much value. All, all players are welcome in Southeast Asia. There have been a number of, of surveys of strategic elites in recent years. Uh, CSIS did one uh, last year. The, every year, the um, ICS in Singapore, um, the ICS Yushuk Institute does a survey of Southeast Asians um, that show that are, that's a really great survey. I recommend you look at that. Um, and they, and it, it shows very consistent results um, over the last three years. Um, and when they when 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 these when when strategic uh, players are in Southeast Asia are asked um, questions about other countries outside of United States and China, including the CSIS survey, it's very clear they see Japan and the EU as really important and increasingly important uh, third players that they want more engagement with. They see India as a country on the horizon as, as, as important potentially, although they always see India as punching below its weight and they're kind of frustrated that India isn't doing, you know, doing more, but they do see India as, as important in the future. Um, and they see other countries, Republic of Korea as, a, as you know, important, not as important um, and as helpful as Japan and the EU, but it's, a, it's another tier. And then below that there's Australia and maybe the UK and then there's, and Russia, but Russia is way down below these other countries. So ASEAN likes to have options. ASEAN likes multipolarity. ASEAN does not want to be locked into a bipolar US-China rivalry where they have to choose. They want to have lots of players in the mix that will give them more balance and more options. So they're not at all opposed to Russia being engaged, um, but they just don't see it as all that important. Um, or likely to get more important is, is, my, is my perspective. Um, 
So Russia matters for some countries. I would say Myanmar right now, Russia matters a lot. Uh, I certainly don't want to dismiss that. But even for Russia's old ally, Vietnam, I mean, Vietnam is much more focused now on on getting the United States to be a more helpful strategic partner than it is on keeping its old friend uh, Moscow happy. Um, so why what you know what why isn't Russia more valuable? Well, because it doesn't show up. Um, you know, Putin tends not to show up, or other high-level officials don't show up. They don't when they do show up. They don't show up with much ideas or ambition. You know, Russia never brings anything to APEC of interest or value. They don't, when they show up to ASEAN stuff, they don't show up with, again, useful input or initiatives. Um, their economic ties are very weak um, in terms of the trade and investment that the, that the Southeast Asians care most about. Um, the security cooperation remains really weak as well. Um, they are useful in terms of um, a, a less costly and more permissive uh, source for some weaponry. So that's important for, for some. Um, and they're potentially useful as a partner for oil and gas exploration, but that has not played out as, as well as, as some might have hoped. And I think the biggest problem, and, and really the South China Sea story, the way that Rosneft has, has pulled back, really points to the biggest problem I think that Russia has, which is I, the, the, the countries in the region view Moscow as being deferential to, to China when it comes to China's geopolitical ambitions in the region. You know, they do not think that Moscow is going to um, go up against Beijing. And related to that, and this I get from reading what uh, Russia experts write about Russia, um, despite all the talk about Russia's look to the Asia Pacific, um, Russia remains fundamentally wedded to a, a Eurocentric kind of view and Eurocentric ambition. And so they are fundamentally focused on their, you know, on, on, on the Euro and Eurasia kind of side of things, not, not or Central Asia to some degree, but the European side of things, um, not on uh, the Asia Pacific side of things. So that's gonna constantly kind of hollow out their efforts to really kind of focus and show up um, in Southeast Asia. And I will stop there. Thanks so much, Amy. That was wonderful, a great start. Um, for those of you watching, uh, you can submit questions and comments. Uh, you can do so uh, via email, emailing kenan at wilsoncenter.org or tweeting us at Kenan Institute. Uh, we are, uh, as I, I believe I mentioned earlier, uh, we are partnering with uh, the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute on this uh, effort. They're our uh, team that works on Russia and Eurasia. As with many other issues where the Asia program is partnering with Russia on this, uh, with uh, the Kennan Institute on this piece. Um, Amy, just a couple of uh, comments. I completely agree with the, uh, the thrust of your, uh, of your remarks. Um, I remember I was with you when we went to uh, Kuala Lumpur in 2015. Uh, that you, as you talked about, is a very memorable trip, um, especially landing at an aircraft carrier in the middle of the South China Sea with Secretary Carter. Um, and uh, uh, that was just a very memorable trip for me, so I'm glad you raised that. Um, I also was thinking about, during, this, uh, during your remarks, I was also thinking about the, um, the 2005 launch of the East Asia Summit when Putin spoke. Um, and I actually looked up while you were speaking, I looked up what he said. And the, the one thing that he said was that um, 
he was lobbying that for Russia to become a member of the East Asia Summit um, and said that Russia was ready to make real contributions to resolving the issues currently affecting the region. Hmm. And they haven't, hmm. right? But six years later in 2011, ASEAN um, invited both the United States and Russia to uh, join EAS. And I think what had changed was not Russia. I don't think they'd suddenly become more active or more helpful, but rather I think the ASEAN states own calculations changed where they were looking for ways to um, balance between China and uh, United States and Russia at the time seemed like a viable alternative. And um, unlike China, uh, from, their, from the perspective of the ASEAN countries, unlike China, Russia doesn't pose a security threat to them has no territorial claims in Southeast Asia. It's avoided taking sides in these disputes, at least at that point it had. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, also it, um, its views on regional security broadly, it, it talks a lot about multipolarity and non-intervention and consensus-based decision-making. And this is music to the ears of, of the ASEAN states who have sort of si- similar approaches, at least some of them similar approaches to um, regional institutions. Um, but. I think that what we've seen, and I think you're exactly right, is that Russia isn't a viable counterweight for any country, uh, be it against uh, Russia, against China or the United States. Um, That uh, even in Vietnam and Indonesia, where um, Russia's more transactional relationships are strongest, um, they're still seen as as incredibly deferential to to Beijing. And uh, the episode with the uh, the Russian Energy Corporation backing out of a deal with Vietnam in deference to Beijing, I think, uh, is an example of that. So I think as, my sense is that as long as Moscow continues to defer to China in, um, in the South China Sea, then it's going to limit their, their utility for the Southeast Asian countries. I don't know if you... Yeah, agree. no, I, I do agree. But actually, let me sharpen the point a little bit, and maybe I should have it in my presentation. Um, it's not just that they're deferential to Beijing. I think that's a big, big liability. But I think that I think the Myanmar, where they're going with Myanmar actually um, is worse in a sense, because that's not about deference to Beijing. That's about pure self-interest. So if you think about what has just happened, the, the ASEAN, you know, Jokowi just held a summit, a special ASEAN summit where Ming Lai went, you know, went to um, and and it's been criticized as being too soft on Myanmar, but from another vantage, and we can debate, you know, glass half empty, glass half full, but I think there's a case to be made that just pulling off this summit is, is not inconsequential. I mean, Jokowi had, uh, you know, some, you know, he had no domestic benefit for doing this and there was risk in trying to say he's going to do this and, um, you know, and a risk that like he wouldn't be able to pull it off. Um, but to get, you know, um, a lot of the leaders there, uh, and to and to 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 get some agreement, including from Myanmar, that there's going to be some kind of process that, of course, you know, Myanmar is going to try to wiggle out of and not give any real meaning to, but just to just to put ASEAN process in motion and say you know, we're, we're going to appoint a special envoy and he's gonna show up and, you know, we have to have dialogue and, you, you know, we're gonna, we, we need this violence to, this is, this is something that ASEAN, you know, prides itself in doing and, um, and it wants to try to, you know, try to, you know, put, 
try to get things a little bit better. And here you have Russia just kind of like embracing um, the coup leaders and saying, this is great. You know, we got no problem with this at all. I mean, even again, even China is trying to be a little more cautious in the way they're approaching Myanmar. It's not that China is being super helpful at the UN, but even China is trying not to get sideways with ASEAN <laughs> in the way they're going about dealing with this. And they're trying not to get sideways with the Myanmar people, more importantly. But, but Russia is just seeing this very narrowly through like, how can we totally exploit the situation for our ability to like sell as many arms as we can or, or whatever, however they're viewing it. But it's a very kind of transactional, I think, or very, uh, you know, um, target of opportunity kind of approach. Um, I can't imagine that this is going over well um, in Jakarta or Kuala Lumpur or, or, other, or, or Bangkok. Um, so yeah, they, they say all the right things about non, you know, um, uh, non-intervention and uh, multipolarity, but 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 ASEAN leader, leaders say that stuff, but they don't. There's levels of there's levels of belief to it. I mean, they say non-intervention, but they don't want to see Myanmar. They don't want to see a military coup in Myanmar either. You know, they don't they don't welcome countries that that embrace the idea that like, oh, that's purely domestic. You know, we should have nothing. To, no, nothing to see here, just move on, you know? So it's, it's a little, it's, uh, so, so the question is, as you, as you put it, like what has, what has Russia done to really help Southeast Asia lately uh, or ASEAN lately? And it's hard to, it's hard to see what they've really done that's been very helpful. You know, right. I mean, joining, joining us, joining China in a major naval exercise in the South China Sea in 2016, I don't think that was seen as very helpful either. Right, right. Now, I, I agree. In terms of the, the ASEAN Leader Summit, I, I agree. I think we both agreed it wasn't what we would want to see if it were up to us. But considering all the constraints that comes from ASEAN, I also agreed. I thought it was constructive. And it had it checked the boxes of what I was looking for from, uh, from the ASEAN Summit. Of course, not as far as I would want, but right. I think a, a constructive first step. And of course, now it's up to, now it's the Tatmadaw's chance to try to evade and get out of things. Um, but one of the uh, questions that came in actually was about, about this. I wanted to, uh, to ask you, it's from uh, Adun Carroll is from the, the Burma Task Force, um, um, asking um, about Russia's engagement with, uh, with the, with the Tatmadaw. Um, asking really, uh, noting that UN envoy Vijay Namblar had seemed to suggest that Russia could serve as a possible mediator in Burma. Um, is your sense that Russia is motivated purely by self-interest? Are they simply, are they hostile to democracy or simply indifferent to it in the pursuit of their own interests, financial interests in oil and gas and arms sales? Uh, what do you see as sort of driving Russia? And do you see them as having any potential constructive role or do you see them purely as a self-interested spoiler? Well, here, here's where, you know, perhaps some Russian experts may have a better, better um, input than I, I do. I, I just, because I really don't, I don't have insight into Russia, you know, Russian diplomacy and um, potential. But from what I've seen so far, it just strikes me as very um, opportunistic. And I don't see, I, I, it's hard for me to see incentives 
based on their behavior so far and their past behavior for why they would play, um, why they would see this as an opportunity to play a yeah. constructive mediating role. I actually think China has more incentives to be honest. I mean, you know, China, I mean, China was doing fine with Aung San Suu Kyi. They're kind of in a pickle now, right? I mean, they, they so China is in a, uh, not that China would ever want to play that kind of visible role either, but I, I guess I would, I find it hard to imagine why Russia would want to play a mediating role. Um, it's just hard for you to imagine why yeah. and how, how it could be particularly useful. Right, I mean, China, I mean, Russia is not exactly a model of democracy or dealing with, um, you know, um, nonviolent opposition right now. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's hard for me to see how, what it, how it's not been playing a helpful role in the UN. Um, it doesn't have particularly close um, channels of communication with ASEAN yeah. that I'm aware of. So um, right. it's hard for me to see it, but, but again, there may be more to Russian diplomacy than I, than I just, than I'm aware of. Yeah, it's interesting that Russia has found a niche in, in this, in Burma right now, it, it's found a niche where um, it can um, sort of be a little differentiate itself a bit from the Chinese um, as well as the Americans. Um, and it's just curious if they're, maybe that's part of their play is they just look for these small areas where they can have a bit more freedom of action where they don't um, cross any Chinese red lines um, and maybe can build some interest, make some money in the meantime. Um, on your, based on your knowledge of Southeast Asia, um, you know, when, when we talk a lot, when we talk about Central Asia, there's a, a large legacy of Russian um, soft power in Central Asia, um, just due to the history, historic ties between Russia and Central Asia, even though China is the dominant economic power, tourism power, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's still that lingering soft power. Do you have a sense that there's maybe parts of Southeast Asia, be it uh, Vietnam or um, Indonesia perhaps, where Russia has, also has some lingering uh, ties and soft power that they can build off of and, as they try to have some degree of a foothold that's not just entirely dependent on the Chinese in Southeast Asia? I haven't seen it. And it doesn't mean it's not there. I haven't been to every corner of Southeast Asia. So, you know, I, I'm not someone who's been in the field. You know, I'm not a lifelong Peace Corps volunteer, foreign service officer. Like, you know, there may be, there may be more there than I, or journalist. There may be more there than, I, than I'm aware of. So I might not be the best person. I'm more, you know, more of a policy expert than a real kind of have lived in the trenches for decades. Um, so don't, so I can't pretend to have the expertise to know. But from what I've seen and talk, you know, what I've seen in, in my travels and the people I've talked to, I have not seen a legacy of soft power uh, for the Russians. I've seen it with, um, you know, you certainly, you certainly see it in, in Vietnam with, with uh, the, the, the China party connection. That there's certainly some people in Vietnam, some, you know, some of the old guard that, ha that do have this, very complicated, but this this communist party channel uh, that they feel like they feel this uh, you know loyalty to, but I in my in I haven't at least had the conversations with them about Russia that have let me 
led me to think that there's these warm, fuzzy feelings about Russians. Um, uh, again, it may be there and I just haven't seen it. But you know, when you, the, what is striking and odd sometimes when you travel through parts of uh, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, is how much, I mean, all these countries are, are so young, you know, there's, there's such a demographic uh, 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 divide. There's very, you know, in many cases, very small, older generations, very large, young generation. And um, there's such a receptivity to the West and the United States. There's such a receptivity to, you know, those, those young people who are on the internet and have access to Western journalism or culture. Um, they, they just, there's so much receptivity to, to uh, Western culture. Uh, so when you think about soft power, I, it's, you know, it's very hard for me to imagine there's any draw to Russian language stuff, yeah. but I could, I could be missing something somewhere, but I would, I would think if there is soft power pockets, it's yeah, very much tied up to a much older generation, which might be rapidly aging out. Anyway, that's the other thing you, you just notice. I mean, when I was, when I was, when I did these defense talks in Cambodia the first time in quite a while, that someone at my level had done them, I was just, it was just so remarkable sitting at a table with my counterpart who was very old and sort of everyone else around the table was younger than me <laughs> and spoke English. It was just incredible. And so you just start, and you just sort of see that replicated sort of all over the place. And so you just start, you just start to think, you know, what happens when this guy dies? I mean, who does, does he replaced by the person sitting next to him as a woman younger than I am? I mean, it's, it's, I don't, I don't know, but it, it just seems like there's going to be this rapid transition at some point. And that, um, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I, I think that even in its closest relationships, what struck me about Russia's relations in Southeast Asia, even with its closest relations with Vietnam, it's still very instrumental, the relationship. There isn't a deep-seated sense of warmth or camaraderie between them. Um, and um, I think it's just something that they're missing and they, it's impossible to replicate. Um, last question that has come in so far um, is actually shifting to the other side of the Strait of Malacca um, and looking at um, Russia and the Indian Ocean. Mm -hmm. um, um, and what role, Russia uh, may be able to play with its relationships in Southeast, in, in the Indian Ocean. Um, we've uh, seen Russia and China doing a lot more militarily. Um, there we've seen Russia be more active with its, with its military, both in terms of exercises, um, but also in some of its writings and, um, and uh, official statements um, about the Indian Ocean. And of course, there's the historic relationship between India and Russia. Uh, which, I, as you, you mentioned before, that there's a bit of a pickle that um, the Chinese are in when it comes to Burma. There's also a bit of a pickle uh, when it comes to India, where chi the Chinese being concerned mm -hmm. about, uh, about India and um, traditionally concerned about India, but at the same time, Russia having that historic relationship, um, including pretty high-level arms sales. So I'm curious if you could get your sense about um, Russia and the Indian Ocean as it relates to um, the complex dynamics that it has between the United States and China, um, and if some of the other Southeast Asian countries 
there, we've already talked about Burma, but perhaps Thailand as well. How you see Russia playing a, a more of a significant role potentially um, in the Indian Ocean? Uh, well, I'm not, I haven't really thought much about Russia's, and I don't know about Russia's relations with other parts of South Asia. So um, I'm gonna beg off because I've never thought about yes. Russia's relations with, <laughs> well, in terms of like Russia's relations with, because we think a lot about China's relations with, you know, Sri Lanka and Bangladesh and Nepal and Maldives. And I have no idea if Russia is in those countries at all, to be honest. I've never thought about it or have seen you know, when I was working on those countries in my job as DASD, I never thought about Russia. So, but India, very large, obviously very large Russia connection. Um, and so very important there. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it is interesting. It does seem like it might complicate Russia-China relations that they are such close defense partners with, China, with, with India. Um, and it certainly is complicated, very much, very much complicated US-India uh, defense cooperation um, that they are that India is so locked in with with Russia. I mean, Abe, as you know, we worked so hard in the Pentagon on our defense technology and trade initiative to find ways where we could really um, boost our defense cooperation to be more than just selling arms and weaponry to the Indians, which we do we do sell a, quite a bit to the Indians, but we both sides want to transform that relationship and to be much more partners in developing technology and co-jointly producing uh, technology and jointly producing um, weapon systems. And um, because the United States does this in very, very particular ways, it's, you know, the fact that the Indians are so close to the Russians, including on um, technology sharing, uh, it's, that's, that makes it very, very difficult to, to do that. Um, so it, it creates a lot of, a lot of, a lot of stickiness, a lot of problems. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it leads to interesting questions about whether, what the U.S. interest should be. I'm kind of diverging a little bit from your question, but it leads to very interesting U.S. policy questions about what U.S. interest should be when it comes to Russia ties to India. In other words, some, some may think that it's okay if India, um, gets some of its, um, weaponries, you know, fighter jets from Russia, um, uh, because it wants to beef up its defenses against China. And maybe that is, you know, complicates Russia-China relations, or, you know, certainly helps to arm the Indians. Whereas others think that think that's not good. Any time that Russia, that India, Russia defense ties are, are, are strengthened, that, that just creates problems for the United States. Um, and I, you know, I, the, but for, for Russia, it's very much about India as a very strong partner and it's great for Russia sales as India is a credibly growing economy and is going to need, and has these big defense, uh, needs and is going to be continuing to buy a lot of, uh, equipment and weaponry. And I'm sure Russia loves the fact that it also causes such heartburn, for the United States as well. And so far it doesn't seem to have caused, at least as far as I can tell, any major rifts between Moscow and Beijing. I think um, if I were India, I would worry a little bit about how much they can trust, you know, Russian equipment not having some sort of 
backdoor channel to, to, to Beijing as, as India wants to get much more sophisticated in some of its um, technologies. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, that, uh, but, but where India is going to go on this, I mean, I, I think, you know, India in some ways is like Vietnam and that even though it's, it's been so heavily dependent on Russia, it's very, very hard for India to, to extricate itself from this Russia defense relationship because they're just so enmeshed with, with that relationship in, in, in the way that they've built up their defense um, systems. But, um, but when they look, when, when certainly when Prime Minister Modi and his key lieutenants, when they look at the big strategic picture down, you know, over the horizon, you know, they, they have, they, they, 10 or 15 years ago, I think they, it would not have been so clear which strategic partner was more important to India, Russia, or the United States. Now it's clear which partner is most important to them. It is the United States. It's just a question of how the United States is not an easy partner to work with, and they are very dependent on the Russians. So it's really just the, the, the problem, the, 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 it's just the difficulty of figuring out how to transition to a real partnership with the United States when you, you, you know, it's, it's hard to get what you want from the United States when we're expensive, we're difficult, you know, uh, all of those things. Yeah, we're, we're just about out of time, Amy. I'm going to uh, turn it over to you for some, for some final thoughts, but I wanted to um, just the two pieces that stick out to me from this discussion, kind of taking a step back. One, I think it's a good description of the complex political calculations being made in, Aus in ASEAN right now. Um, as as um, US-China competition heats up, um, that really they're looking for any and all parties that could help them find some balancing, even the Russians who don't really have that much uh, weight to throw around in the region. Um, the other piece is that when I hear, it also makes me think of um, folks talking about the need for the United States to play Russia off of China. Um, and at least in Southeast, when it comes to Southeast Asia, there doesn't seem to be much of a gap um, or to drive a wedge into. Um, primarily, I think, because of the, the level of interest between Beijing and Moscow is so different. Um, but this has been very interesting and very helpful. Thank you very much, Amy. It's wonderful to see you again. I'm glad you could come and participate. Uh, thank you to Lucas uh, for, for uh, helping put this together and to Morgan Jacobs and the Kennan Institute. Uh, for coasting with us, uh, Amy. Uh, any any final thoughts before we wrap? Um, you know, I, I I miss the pre-COVID days when we could be more in you know kind of session together. And I feel like with the audience that I can't see, uh, I I could have learned and benefited so much from the uh, thoughts and expertise of others on. Russia's thinking uh, about Southeast Asia. So uh, I feel like this was a one-sided um, discussion of me just kind of sharing my one-sided observations of Russia from Southeast, a sort of Southeast Asian perspective. So um, uh, 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 if any, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear at some future date others' thoughts about, about Russia's interests and perhaps lack of ability to translate more um, of their interests and, and strategic um, objectives into, into gains. But I really enjoyed this. Thank you very much. Um, uh, yeah, I look forward to engaging on these kinds of discussions in the future. Thanks, Dave and Lucas. Thank you. Amy, it's a, 
it's a great segue because we do have several events um, and publications looking at various aspects of um, Russia, US dynamics in, in Asia. Um, and so uh, we'll be doing a lot more of these. We have been doing a few, we'll be doing more of um, looking at various aspects of these issues. And uh, thank you all for watching. Amy, again, thank you so much for, for calling in. It's great to see you. And for everybody watching, take care and stay safe.